0: The Conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. All right. A couple people settling in. Um, Thank you guys so much for for coming out. Um, It is... Incredible! This is our 18th talk in this series that we call The Conversations at the Interval. Um, this one, like all the others, I'm very proud to say is a sellout crowd, so thank you so much. Give yourselves a round of applause for... Every show is better with a sellout crowd. You will know this from going to movie premieres. Uh, (laughs) so, uh, but, uh, this is, this is going to be a wonderful show, but it is, um, your excitement, you guys, uh, coming out here, uh, really makes this special. And a reminder that as always in this series, uh, Jeffrey is going to be sticking around afterwards, uh, myself and other Long Now staff from around here, we're, we're hoping you will stay and put the real salon part into this, uh, salon talk series, as we like to say, uh, keep the conversation going with each other and with our speaker, tonight. Please give a huge uh, round of applause for Jeffrey. He's going to take us in.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everybody for coming out, all friends and family and everybody. It's amazing to be able to give a talk in the space that we helped design. It's kind of a peak moment in my life, so I'm going to keep going before I start crying. And... uh, so the talk, uh, talking with robots about architecture or uh, how automation and communication is going to change everything we know about buildings. So, uh, as Michael said, uh, I'm architect in California, licensed architect in California, and I run a firm called uh, Because We Can. Uh, we're what, what's called a design build studio, uh, is what we call We're over just in Oakland, not far from here. and. Uh, the difference is that we're, we're an architecture studio, architecture firm, uh, we do all the typical architect-y sorts of things, but uh, one of the things is that we actually fabricate things for our own projects, too, in, our, in an in-house shop that we have over in West Oakland. And sometimes we work with other designers, building things with them uh, for larger projects as well. So just really quick, just to go through some stuff, you know, we do buildings, interiors, furniture, art, uh, both commercial and residential. We're really into creative reuse. We really love remodels. We really love working with existing stuff that's there, making the world a more interesting place. Uh, You know, and we do all the stuff, like the permit drawings and the design and finding contractors to work with that a typical architect does, but then we actually make things in-house. So a great example here in the Long Now is we made the bar, and we made that cabinet under the stairs. Those came out of our shop in West Oakland and were made by our team. So, uh, and we'll talk more about how that uh, worked. A great example of a project that we do, the project types that we do, is we did a um, steampunk zoo in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, as, as one does. So we got a phone call. They had this, <laughs> they had this Galapagos tortoise exhibit. Uh, the building was half built. They wanted us to come in and finish it out, make it a kid's science center. So during the day, they rent out that room as used for kid's science programs. Then at night, they rent it out for events and stuff like that. And we themed the whole place, and it's a great example of our workflow, where you know we did a bunch of drawings, we did the typical design work, but then we actually made a lot of that stuff, and then shipped it out to Hattiesburg, uh, and handed it off to a local contractor who did the install. Um, and sometimes we also just make stuff for fun. Uh, you know, we've made some with friends we've worked with uh, to make awesome art to take out to Burning Man. We made a bunch of stuff for Maker Faire over the years. And uh, another great example of our work is here at the Interval. And as I was saying, there's a lot of elements here in the bar that we physically made and some stuff that was built by contractors and some stuff that was done by subcontractors. And it's a whole hybrid kind of workflow. Um, so I moved here in 96 after dropping out of architecture school uh, and just got a job as a CAD monkey and started working towards my license. Uh, I've always been kind of half in the tech world and half in the design world. Uh, early adopter of CAD and 3D modeling and BIM and CNC tools and digital fabrication and all that kind of stuff. Always, I'm always looking for new ways of working. Uh, and because of that, we've done uh, consulting work, currently we're doing a bunch of consulting work for the office of the CTO at Autodesk around digital fabrication and other things like that. Um, and things in the construction industry change both really fast and really slow. Uh, when I first moved here in 96, people were still hand drafting at, at the smaller firms. right? And then CAD and then the internet and then BIM and now IPD is like swallowing the industry in these like kind of progressive waves. Uh, but then also, you know, as things are changing, uh, you know, who was in the building industry in 2008? Yeah. So I don't know. Most people probably aren't aware of this. Unemployment reached 40% uh, in certain sectors of the building industry, uh, in 2008 with the downturn, right? A lot of people got washed out of the industry. So there's, in some ways it's still a very traditional industry and when it busts, it busts hard. Um, everything is still largely paper-based too. Uh, this is our drawing set for a house remodel uh, that's under the vacuum cleaner. This is how I found it at the job site, (laughs) you know? And we still have to submit paper to the building department. Uh, It's so there's still these very old things mixed in with the new things. But uh, one thing is is that two large trends that I've seen over the last 20 years that I think are gonna continue rolling forward in the next 20 years is this idea of automation and connection, right? And so I think, personally, Everything that can be easily automated is eventually going to be easily automated in the construction industry and automation I, I use the term robot kind of interchangeably for automation um, so for the purpose of this talk, please you know give me that and not you know get too technical about it um, but it's kind of equivalent to automation in general, and also i'm here i'm honestly I'm really talking about for all intents and purposes, like weak AI. I'm not getting into like crazy singularity, strong AI, what the future could be like 1,000 years from now, OK? Um, so current, this is today, right? Today, robots do my drafting, OK? So I don't draft things anymore. Uh, there's a whole new thing that came out about, started using it about 10 years ago, uh, this concept called BIM, which is building information management, not going to get to, or bu- building information modeling, not going to get too technical here. But the basic idea, see that top left there, okay? That's an image of the 3D model of one of the buildings out at the UCF Medical Center, right? The new medical buildings, they're giant machines just wrapped in a pretty skin so that they're not scary to us people when we go there. Um, Like seriously, they're incredibly complex, right? So trying to navigate that kind of a project with 2D drawings on paper is almost impossible, right? So this whole BIM system, basically what you do is you describe to the computer in high detail what the building is made out of, and then that system then produces a lot of the drawings, plans, sections, elevations, all that kind of stuff that you need to submit to the building department, okay? So robots are already doing our drafting. Um, robots are also doing our field measuring. This is a laser scan of a, of a, um, of a, a city square in Europe. Uh, with the wonder Kimmer, the cabinet under the stairs here, we actually had a point cloud uh, of the interior space that somebody had done, and we were able to take you know, the laser measurements of that and then use that to fabricate the cabinet that fits right underneath there. And uh, the other thing is this whole idea that like, this is from our friend's company case, Tyler, raise your hand, he works for that company. (laughs) So at any rate, this whole idea that, you know, it's more about data uh, than it is about drawing, right? And also robots build my building. So there's this whole concept called digital fabrication, right? Where we have these computer controlled tools that cut things out. So the things I draw on a computer or that I model on the computer, uh, these giant robots will then carve or cut out those pieces for me. And that's how everything you see in here was made. Like, we didn't cut out that cabinet. That cabinet was cut out for us by a robot, right? Um, another really interesting thing, this is our, one of our CNC machines that we have, one of the older ones here, so this is what I'm talking about. It's a giant cutting robot. In the top corner there, that's something called a total station. It's a really exciting new thing that's come into existence the last 10 years or so. So they started making survey equipment for job sites, robotic so that one guy could just walk around with a little wand and GPS mark points, right? And then they're like, well, if that thing's robotic, why don't we put a pointing laser on it and it can point where stuff's supposed to go, right? So you feed the CAD model to it and it will point with a laser, like, oh yeah, the anchors for the pipes that you're going to hang six months from now go there and there and there and there, you know? And so it created a feedback loop because you can measure things on the site too with that and then feed it back into the CAD model, back into the BIM model. So if something got put in the wrong place, you know exactly where it's at and you can coordinate. And all that kind of stuff. This is all stuff that's happening today. This is not hoo ha future. This is really standard kind of stuff. Uh, prefabrication and pre production. Um, I'm not talking about the kind of hyped up dwell, like we're going to drop a house on a site kind of prefabrication. But like bathrooms now are something on larger commercial projects where they're just fabricating those bathrooms as little units in a factory and just bringing them out and dropping them into the site with a crane. Uh, also, the new Apple—the cam- uh, new building that they're building on the Apple campus. A bunch of the offices and bathrooms are all getting prefabricated in some fancy factory somewhere, brought out to the job site, dropped into place. Um, and a lot of that is heavily automated in those factories. And then, lastly, uh, this is a bit of a joke, but there are robotic bulldozers now. Uh, robotic bulldozers look exactly like normal bulldozers, which is why I put this picture in there instead. But, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, Basically, there's systems now where you feed it the CAD data of what the site is supposed to be, and a driver just follows a line on a screen on a GPS, and the blade of the bulldozer automatically moves to grade the site to make it have the shape that it needs to have. And they've been doing that for like eight years now or something. Trimble has that whole front-to-back setup. It's pretty awesome stuff. So, moving forward, here we're getting into some of the more future kinds of things is you know there's large-scale robotic assembly um, which is really interesting where you're starting to use robot arms to actually do uh, really interesting things that would be hard to do by hand Um, there's uh, on-site CNC tools and and you know this kind of large-scale digital fabrication so this is a 3d printer that squirts out concrete to make larger sized buildings I'm pretty I'm pretty bearish about this. We can talk about that later. I don't think this is going to have much future, but it's really cool. <laughs> um, this, I think, is going to have more future. This is from my friend Ronald, uh, Ronald Reel over at UC Berkeley. He's uh, 3D printing bricks uh, that go together. And so this brick is shaped off of Mayan principles so that they interlock in a way that when they shake, they fall towards their center and the wall doesn't fall apart. And all of these perforations make it to where the brick cools itself when it gets wet. So, like, so, super intelligent components that he's making for buildings. Uh, automated reality capture, I think, is going to just become a much more bigger thing. So, this is basically a drone flying a path every day over a site and making a 3D model of the site on a daily basis, so that you can see like what's changing and you know what's happening and stuff like that. Um, so, robots are now keeping track of what's going on. And another thing, on the top right there, that's exciting is the whole like. You know, the whole like Google Glass thing and augmented reality sort of thing got a lot of hype and then kind of crashed, you know? But one area that I see huge legs for that is on construction sites. There's already apps that you can have where you have an iPad that basically becomes like a magic window that you hold up to a wall and it'll show you what it knows from the CAD model what's in the wall, right? Or it'll show you what's supposed to go there next, you know? And you can like coordinate on the site with the iPads like that. The other thing... It's a really creepy picture. Um, <laughs> I think everything that can be easily connected will be. And what I'm talking about connection here, I'm talking about new ways of communicating between people. And I'm talking also about new ways of communicating between people and robots, and new ways for the robots to talk amongst themselves as well, right? And so you know, today, currently, uh, connecting the team, there's a lot of stuff going on. This is cheesy cloud picture that's required in every tech presentation, right? Um, But there is a lot of stuff that's going on in cloud collaboration right now. Uh, It's pretty amazing to see how radically the industry has changed in the last five years because people had tried to push computers out to the job site so they could stop pushing paper out to the job site forever, and it never worked. It always failed in some way, and then the iPad came along. And now you go out to any major construction site and everybody has an iPad. And they're all marking up PDFs and sending PDFs now back and forth instead of paper, right? And that's like a really quick change that has just happened recently. Um, a lovely little detail about that is one of the big contractors that was the first people to do that. Um, sorry, the buses. Um, they were like, you can't, give every, you can't give all the people in the field an iPad. They'll just break them, right? They're like, we can't buy all these iPads and then give them to a bunch of construction workers, they'll just get broken. And so somebody came up with a super smart idea where they're like, oh, you know what? This project is gonna take five years to build, four years to build. By four years, the iPads are gonna be worthless, right? We can't sell them to somebody else or anything like that. Let's just give all the construction workers the iPad and tell them that it's their iPad and if they break it, they have to buy a new one, right? And then everybody was like buying cases for their iPad and not letting anybody else steal their iPad and be like, oh, it's my iPad, I get to take it home. Like, this is mine, you know? And um, so there's social engineering things there uh, that are fun. Uh, There's this whole idea, uh, IPD, uh, Integrated Project Delivery. um, And I'll talk a little bit more about this later in the talk. But part of it is just an attempt to remove some of the liability involved from the traditional process of how buildings get delivered. Uh, the, The traditional architect design the building and then hand the drawings off to a contractor who builds the building for the owner is just rife with problems and lawsuits. right? And you all hear about all these issues that happen. So one big attempt, especially for big complex projects, like the UCF uh, Medical Center that was built here in San Francisco recently, uh, the hospital staff basically hired a contractor. And then the contractor went and hired the engineer and the architect and everybody else. They're all working under one contract. And their profit is held in an escrow account. And when they meet certain goals, they get their profit. Right. So everybody gets paid for their time. But if you want your profit, you have to work together. Right? So it forces everybody to be a better team and to actually communicate. Those sorts of things. So that's been a huge communication issue. And the other thing, too, is see that top right picture? <laughs> so, so, models don't, so, so models don't lie, right? Like if I have a 3D BIM model of my project, that's, that, if that's what's getting built, you see that's what's getting built, right? Models can lie, it's true, but um, for the most part, like on paper, that happened because somebody looked at a plan. It looks fine in plan. Right, unless you, unless you coordinate that driveway with like the topo and realize that it's not going to work at all. You know, but if you're working in like a 3D BIM system, you would see that instantly and be like, oh, that's not going to work, you know. <laughs> so, um, so, again, we're able to communicate much richer because instead of me and like the surveyor, me and the civil engineer just pushing drawings back and forth that neither of us are paying close attention to, we're actually pushing whole 3D models back and forth that are intelligent and have context in them, that knows it's a driveway, like all that kind of stuff. And lastly, this whole kind of big data, actual metrics. Like we can actually track like, who's touching what and how often they're touching it and how where the problems are coming from and who keeps screwing up the project as it's moving forward. And no, no I'm serious. Like it's, it's a huge thing for communication. And then connecting the building itself. So actually, there's a ton of interesting things that have been going on in terms of the building communicating with people and with itself. So who here has a Nest thermostat? About a ton of people. There's one, there's one here in the bar uh, on the wall over there. And uh, three. There's, three, there's three of them in the bar. So the Nest is a great example of how cheap sensors are finding their ways into buildings. Right? Consumer thing, you can buy it at Home Depot, you put it on your wall, it talks to your iPhone, talks to Wi-Fi, learns how to heat your house the way you want it heated. Um, the top right there, uh, this is... Cheap sensors, like so that on the top right, they're actually just embedding sensors straight into the concrete beam that they're going to leave there forever. Uh, And so when the next major earthquake comes along, uh, they'll be able to, the beam will know whether it's been compromised or not, right? Because the sensors are so cheap, they can just put them right into the building, right? So again, you know, we're connecting the buildings at a much higher level, which brings up this whole spine idea, which is something that, uh, Science fiction author that I really like named Bruce Ber- uh, Sterling wrote a book called Shaping Things. Who who here's read Shaping Things? Oh good, a few people. It's a, really, it's a really cool book. He has this idea called a spime, which is basically where you have something, and the nest is a perfect example of this, the, the thermostat, where you have a physical object that has some kind of virtual identity online that is like an adjunct to its self, right? So you're not just buying a nest as a physical product, You're buying the fact that the nest has an iPhone app that it talks to and that that nest knows that it's that nest that's in that side of your house and all that kind of stuff. So this idea of a spime is where the virtual representation of that object and the actual physical representation of that object have some kind of relationship to each other and stay related to each other over time. right? And so you're starting to see a lot more of that in the building industry. Um, A great example, I think, this was a project that was done out of uh, Syfi, which is a special group down at Stanford that's for researching for Uh, built environment and facilities management and and that kind of stuff. So they put RFID tags on everybody's hard hat on a big job site and put little RFID readers on the roof, on the ceiling I mean, you know. So anywhere you walked in the building it knew where you were and who was where and who was doing what when and they could cross-correlate that data with like accident reports, productivity reports, all kinds of stuff to really understand like who was in the building when, when certain things were happening and like really look through all of that data and again just be more connected in general with what's going on. So one thing, though, is that, so those are the two big forces that I see that are, like, rolling through and changing the industry, right? You have automation and connection, communication. But, you know, there's things that are counteracting those two forces that kind of push back on it and cause those things to come out in interesting ways that are kind of unexpected, right? So counteracting on those two trends, right? It doesn't always make sense to automate everything, and it doesn't always make sense to connect everything, because otherwise you wind up with Skynet. The reality here is who who here in this room actually works with robots for a living or works with a robot? Okay, so you know the truth is that if a single wire was pulled out of this anywhere, it would fall over immediately. (laughs) Like robots are incredibly fragile, okay? Like trying to automate everything is extremely expensive because robots aren't cheap. You know, a a single robot arm is probably three to four people's salaries for like a standard like kind of factory worker or like labor kind of person, right? You know, the other thing is that robots are really fragile. Like the big robo games that they have out here at Fort Mason, um, half the robots wind up DOA from just shipping. Like they break in shipping. Like this is, this is not Terminator, okay? Um, so robots need constant maintenance. Robots are mostly held together by the sheer will of their maintainers and a 1,000 zip ties. Like if, if if Skynet ever tries to take over, we just need to make something that corrodes zip ties, and humanity is totally safe. Um, the, the other problem is diminishing returns, right? Like if you try to automate something, it's it's kind of an exponential curve. Like if you try to automate something 100%, uh, you know, going from 80% to 100% is another like exponential more amount of money, right, in that automation process. And lastly, robots are really inflexible to change. Like they work, automation in general works really well in a stable environment when things aren't changing, right? And so if you have a business where things, details are changing all the time, all of a sudden your automated process isn't gonna work anymore, right? The other thing with communication is when you try to connect everything to everything else, uh, you wind up with a lot of friction, right? There's tons, like who here loves communication standards because there's so many of them, right? (laughs) Like it's, it's great, like you know. And, a big pro- and, and it's a huge problem, right? Like, oh, OK, we're going to standardize on this method, and somebody else standardized on another method, so now we're having to write like, a special piece of some code that translates that method to this method. And it, you know, again, now you're adding friction, you're adding overhead. Connecting those things together starts losing value. Um, there's a lot of f- fragmentation there. The other thing, too, is when you start connecting everything, you start winding up with too many cooks, right? Like, I mean, just look at like YouTube video comments. You know, where it's like, if everybody can say something, pretty soon things start getting really, like, who's saying something valuable, who are we really listening to here, like, things start breaking down and you start getting too much information. Like, the signal to noise ratio goes way off, you know? And lastly, who here, uh, who works for a large company, is working with a horribly outdated, like, internet system of one kind or another, or some kind of information system inside their company that they can't bear to deal with anymore, just because of institutional inertia, it's still there, right? So another big problem with trying to connect everything for communication is y- they might have connected that system in some awesome way like 15 years ago, and now it's a horrible albatross that the company can't get away from because it would cost so much money to re-implement something better and new that everybody just puts up with this horrible, outdated system that's actually taking more time and money that it's helping create, you know? And also there's some things that are just intrinsic to buildings that make it to where automating and, connecting everything don't work. Like, one of the big things is like, why can't we make buildings the way Tesla makes cars, right? Tesla automated the heck out of making these cars. And, you know, robots do all this assembly, it's absolutely beautiful. They automated the line so that, you know, it can make this car today and make a different type of car tomorrow. You know, like, it's, it's really impressive. Well, one of the big reasons why we can't make buildings the way we make cars is cars are a mass produced item that's made entirely from custom parts, right? Like, the doors for a Tesla don't fit on my Subaru. They don't fit on my Prius. Like the, the doors for a Tesla are just for a Tesla. Like they're all custom-made parts for a mass-produced item, right? Buildings are the opposite, right? It's a totally custom item that's made almost entirely from mass-produced parts. Right? So those are all those pieces are just that's just timber that you can buy from a lumberyard. Those straps and stuff are off-the-shelf items, or they were just like welded up at a shop somewhere. You know, buildings are 90% just off-the-shelf stuff. You know, that's minimally modified, if modified at all, and just put together into a totally custom one-off thing. Part of that is because of this. So, (laughs) buildings are a result of a lot of different forces coming together at the same time, okay? So you have cultural things that are happening, right? Where a building that, you know, looks like a hospital here in the Bay Area would not fly in Philadelphia, right? Like, Philadelphia expects a hospital to look different. Just culturally, local culture is a big issue. there's also political issues, right? Like, you know, trying to build on the San Francisco waterfront or trying to build in Oakland or different areas. There's, there's local codes and local government things that you have to deal with. Economics impacts areas. Like, what's viable to build here in California You would cost twice as much to build somewhere else, just, or take twice as much to heat, you know, with the performance issue. Like, if you build a typical California house and you put it in the Arizona desert like they did in Phoenix, now you're paying hundreds of dollars in cooling bills every summer because you had your giant picture window that looked out at your swimming pool, which is a terrible idea to have in Arizona, but hey, you know. Um, so every building is this like, weird combination of hyper-local issues, right? And so it's almost impossible to think that we could like, crank out mass-produced buildings that would fit because everybody would want it customized and edited for their specific spot. Also, the construction industry kind of works at its own time scale. Right? This is from Stuart Brand's talk that was here just a little while ago. He was here at that talk. It was great. All right, cool. Um, so this idea of pace layers. And these layers move at different speeds, right? So we're mostly in that infrastructure layer. Right? The building industry is the last to adopt new technology. And that's not always because they're stingy or like, because they're scared of new technology. Um, uh, not to call you out, Dylan, but architect friend of mine here. How long did you work on the Stanford project that you worked on? Oh, about, only about three years. Uh, but how long did the project go for? It was like four, five years. four or five years. Right. So it, when a single, think of how much technology has changed in five years when it comes to like these things. right? There's hospital projects that are 15, 20 years in the making. Right? By the time the project is done, whatever CAD system you're using for the project won't run on modern operating systems anymore. <laughs> and yet you're contractually obliged by the contract to deliver the CAD files in that format. So you're running like virtualized systems that are running old OSs to be able to run old CAD systems to be able to, yeah, yeah, it gets ugly fast. Um, But also really big contractors, really big builders, really big developers, they're really just risk uh, and resource managers, right? The really big contractors that are building those hospitals or building the the skyscrapers in downtown San Francisco, they might not even have a single person on their staff that actually does physical construction. They, they're almost finance companies at that point. Where they're, and there's literally, like some of the larger contractors have people working for them that are hedge, almost like hedge fund managers that are buying steel futures. So seven years from now, when you buy the steel to build your hospital, it's hedged in case steel doubles in price in that seven years, right? So they're very risk averse. So unless they know that a technology is going to work, they, they don't really go into it. But then also, weirdly enough, part of the building industry works at that top layer too, right? where there's last-minute changes for a variety of reasons. Um, Planning around certain things can be really difficult. Like hospital projects have to... Most hospital projects, because they take five to seven years to build, by the time the project is done, the MRI machines that they plan to have in the hospital are totally outdated now. So they purposely plan to be able to just, okay, in seven years from now, when they actually buy the real machine, it has to fit in the room that we designed seven years ago. You know? So there's all this crazy stuff that happens. So the time scale, too, is something that lends itself to where it's very difficult for us to mass produce buildings, you know, in the way that we build cars. Lastly too, in terms of automating stuff, humans are awesome. Like holy cow, we're, we're clever, we're adaptable, we're cheap. It's awesome. Like people are great. Like I'm serious. Like trying to automate stuff past a certain point starts getting really diminishing turns really fast. The other thing too is there's this whole idea, um, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because I'm bad with names sometimes. but uh, uh, Hasim Talib, the fellow who wrote the Black Swan book, he wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. Has anybody read Anti-Fragile? So, so, so the concept of anti-fragility is basically that humans are anti-fragile, right? Like when you face, when a human faces a challenge, sometimes they'll solve that challenge in a way that creates additional value, right? It's the classic inventor-entrepreneur story of like this, this sucks, this is a terrible problem, I came up with a solution, that solution makes is awesome or gave me an idea for this other thing over here that was unrelated that all of a sudden is like awesome and that becomes a product in its own right or a new service or whatever. They're creating value out of thin air. It's magic, right? No automation can do that whatsoever, right? Automation is fragile. It gets faced with a challenge, it breaks, and it stops working until you fix it, right? So case in point, just to drive that home a little bit with the whole robots versus humans, um, I don't think that robots are going to replace people wholesale at all. Because I think personally that the real money is in empowering people, right? Like, people care about people. A great example of this is in the top left there. Mozart, hundreds of years ago, made a game that if you roll dice, right, it'll write a waltz, right? It's just a random thing. You roll dice, it writes you a waltz, okay? Uh, First-year computer science, you know, learning programming, can write a computer program that can just crank out waltzes all day long right? As many waltzes as you want to listen to in your lifetime, right? We don't walk around listening to Spot Waltzify. We don't, like, you know, nobody listens to these. Nobody cares about these. They're boring. It's the same thing over and over. Nobody made it. There's no story there. There's no personality. There's no people, right? We care about what other people do. It's not just about the content, right? Um, It's another huge thing, too, is the companies that have empowered their people and not tried to replace their people, uh, are the ones who have wound up becoming massively successful over the long term? So a great example of this is Toyota. So back in the '80s, Ford spent millions of dollars buying tons of robots to try to fully automate one of their automobile plants. Around that same time in the '70s, Toyota developed the anon cord. Right? Who here knows about the anon cord? Right. So that cord is a simple piece of rope. It runs the entire assembly line. Anybody on the assembly line sees a problem. They pull that rope, it stops the line. So they trusted the lowest assembly worker in the factory that if they saw a problem that they could stop the line and report it, right? So you pull that cord, stops the line, right? So this like cheap little system is one of the many things that made Toyota the powerhouse that they are because everybody now is responsible for quality and they empowered everybody to be in control of it, right? Uh, And the the giant factory that um, they made, that Ford made was a total flop, It was a huge failure. this is this giant gear wall thing that we made for the zoo project that we did in Mississippi. It's this huge, awesome, it's like eight feet wide, and when you turn the outer gear, all the inner gears turn. Kids love it, they like play with it constantly. Um, nobody cares that that was made by a robot, right? Kids don't care that it was made by a robot. It was made by a robot, but nobody cares. Like they just see it and they're like, oh cool, it's a giant gear wall, and like, like, they like play with it and spin it and stuff like that. And the other thing too, and this I love this fact, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating. I was at a conference talking with somebody who works with robotic arms for a living, the fancy KUKA arms, you know, and she was in a debate with a professor who wrote a book on how robots are going to replace everybody, and so he's like arguing that case in point. And she's arguing against that, very pragmatically. And this fact that she said just blows my mind. She said, okay, let's say we want to replace humans with robots, okay? And let's say that one robot arm replaces one person. Okay, that's not the case. Usually it's three to five robot arms replace a person on an assembly line, but let's just, for the example, one arm replaces one person. At current production levels of robot arms, because robot arms aren't made by robot arms, robot arms are made by people. They're hand assembled by people. They're this complex. They're completely made by people, right? So, if you just wanted to make enough robot arms to replace the people who make the robot arms in the first place, at current production levels, it would take you 15 years. That's not even meeting the demand of the rest of the world for robot arms. That's just making enough robot arms so that the robot arms could in theory make more robot arms without people being involved. So again, it's kind of this idea that robots are going to be a runaway thing is just not in any kind of near time frame whatsoever. However, that said, uh, some of the solutions that I see for some of those counteracting forces is what I like to call uh, semi-automated and loosely connected, right? So, Semi-automated, so there's some really cool, smarter tools that are coming into existence. This thing on the top left here is Tactio Router. These guys from MIT, they made a handheld router that's a little robotic, computer-controlled router. Right? So it's a little handheld router like you'd use in woodworking, but it, um, the router itself can move a couple inches back and forth within the little case that you hold. Right? It's got a little camera on it, it's got a little screen, and what it does is you can actually say, I want to cut a straight line from here to here, and you're, as long as you keep the dot in the circle, it will adjust the router to take all your like, you know, jaggy motions out and just cut a perfectly straight line, right? Or I wanna cut a star shape out and I don't have the skill to actually do that by hand, but the machine will totally help you do the fine motor control to make that work, right? So I think we're gonna see a lot more stuff like that, where it's not about making some machine like we have. Like we have a giant robot that does the exact same thing and I don't have to keep a dot in a circle or anything. I program it, tell what to do, walk away, it cuts stuff while I'm off working. you know, but in this instance, anybody can pick that up and use it, right? You don't have to program it. You don't have to know CAD. you like, that kind of semi-automated kind of approach is, is just huge. A great thing on the top right there too is people working alongside robots. So a robot arm like this one that's carving out foam, it will kill you if you stand next to it, right? If it swings over while you're working next to it, it will, it will cause a lot of damage to you. They're big, they're heavy, they're very powerful. So this thing has to be in a cage by OSHA rules, and you can't go anywhere near it when it's working, right? But that robot up there at the top, that's a special robot that this new, this company called Universal Robotics is making. It's all belt driven internally. If that robot arm hits you, it doesn't hurt you at all. It just hits you and and that's it. Like it, it has a slip belt system on the inside. So if it hits something, it doesn't do any damage, it just stops, right? So that arm is what's loading and unloading that CNC mill that that machinist is working at. So instead of the machinist wasting his time loading and unloading the mill, the robot arm loads and unloads the mill, and that guy can do higher-value tasks, right? So semi-automated. Like, I'm not trying to make it to where nobody's ever needed, but I'm keeping a human in the loop because humans are awesome and they do great jobs, right? Um, But at the same time, I'm working side-by-side with them. The other thing is that a friend of ours that does big, massive sculptures, he did the bow and arrow on the waterfront here in San Francisco. His name's Bill Chrysler, he's a really awesome guy and um, he has a CNC machine the size of a basketball court. It, it wouldn't fit in this room. It's a five-axis machine. He bought it from a boat builder. It's a massive, massive thing. The, for a lot of their projects, when they're doing complicated sculptural work, they'll actually have the CNC router only get it about 80% of the way there, and then their talented crew of sculptors comes in and finishes the 20% by hand because it's faster, right? It's that 80-20 rule. It's like the machine can do 80% of the work and 20% of the time, and then that last little bit of finishing work is done by hand, because that's where the artistry and the craft really come into it, to make the piece really good. Like, if you tried to make it to where it came off the CNC machine 100% done, you're gonna spend 100 times the amount of time in programming the CNC machine, and it still might not look as good because it didn't have that final touch that a talented sculptor is able to do. And um, lastly, uh, you know, This is a protein folding diagram. One of the cool things is when you start to make things with robots is you can make things, the joke that we say is that you can make things that want to be built, right? So if you put all the parts in a box and you shook the box long enough, you'd wind up with the assembled cabinet, like what's under the stairs over here, right? It's a theoretical idea, but basically we can make it so that stuff only goes together the right way, right? So again, it's semi-automated. I'm not trying to make a machine that will assemble cabinets for me. Instead, I'm making really smart parts that are really simple for anybody to put together to make a cabinet, so everything's kind of like Ikea-like or something, you know? Um, And nature is a great example of that. Loosely connected, so this one's a little more esoteric, but um, you know the movie Rashomon, right? The classic Kurosawa film where there's various truths that everybody has from an event that really happened, you know, this idea that we call it, we call it single sources of specific truths, so it's almost the opposite of that. What we'll have is, at our company, we have a couple different systems in place where you go for specific truths, right? Like, so if I need to know what hardware is going into the piece that we're building for that cabinet, I go to this in-house intranet wiki ERP system that we built, right? If I need to design the parts for that system, that's all in this like BIM model system that we have, but it's a single source of truth, right? So we have these like single pillars of truth that we're reaching towards. So we're not worrying about fully connecting those things or having every single detail in one uber holy grail of a system that controls everything, but instead what we're doing is we're being very explicit about what systems, Are containing the truth you know of that truth (laughs) so that so that we can work together in an efficient way Um, so it's loosely connected Um, another thing is the whole concept of this is a big thing in the startup world but cohort metrics um, so the whole idea of a cohort metric is just looking at a metric by itself like how many accidents we had on the job site or Um, How many people are looking at our website right now, those sorts of things are largely useless when you're just looking at that one number. It's all vanity, right? Like, oh, we've got a ton of people looking at our website. Like, that's awesome, right? But knowing how many people are looking at our website versus how many people are actually buying something from us who came to our website, and are those two even correlated to each other? You know, like, the great example is that hard hat that I showed you earlier with the RFID tag in it, right? So being able to cross-correlate accidents in the field with which crews were where and what was going on is really, really valuable. Like loosely connecting those two systems so that we can study them in a way has a huge amount of value. Um, and also this idea of social making. So you people in this, everybody here who's in the software industry knows about Git, right? Like GitHub and all of that kind of stuff. There is nothing like that in the building industry whatsoever. There's people that are trying to make stuff that's kind of like it. It's still probably 20 years away, right? Just now are we getting into where there's some collaborative CAD systems where it's easy for me to share files online and collaborate with other people to work on them. Um, There's one that we're actually helping out with somewhat that Autodesk has called Fusion. That's all for mechanical CAD stuff where you can truly work with other people and you can fork and merge and all that kind of stuff. All the stuff you software people totally take for granted for collaboration is just now coming into our industry and it looks like rocket science. (laughs) Like it blows people away that you could do this, right? Um, And again, it's this social-making idea, so we're loosely connected to each other, um, you know, in the fact that we're we're working together uh, in these these really nice connected systems. Uh, And lastly, this kind of idea of late binding uh, processes. So, um, this is a great book, and one of the core points of this book is that, for certain decisions, uh, the longer you can put off the decision, the better you'll be, because you'll have more information to make the decision. So they actually discovered that some of the architects that were the most successful were the ones who figured out what problems they could ignore until the very last minute and then would solve them at the last minute on purpose so that they had all this new information to then solve that problem with, right? So it it was able to come together at the very end. And in the software industry, they call this like a late binding kind of thing, um, trying to work that way in our world as well. And, uh, but then at the same time, new technologies change what's easy, right? So this is another thing that's counteracting that why you wouldn't connect everything and automate everything is, uh, you know, robots act as a force multiplier. Uh, I buy a CNC machine, I tell the CNC machine to do, make some parts for me. I leave and I work on something else while it's doing its job over there. Now I'm twice as productive, right? We have two machines now, we bought a second one, so we have two giant CNC routers side by side. I can run them both by myself while I'm doing a third thing, right, so I could be cutting that out, cutting this thing out and then working on my laptop like making a quote for somebody, right, it's amazing a really huge impact. Um, so you know being able to automate stuff makes me able to do higher value stuff. Also the robots don't care what they're making. So that's a pan- that's a close-up of the panels of the de Young Museum that's in Golden Gate Park here. So all of those panels are unique, right? Each panel is unique. Uh, no two are the same. They were made by a CNC punch press. The robot doesn't care if they're all different right? Holes are free is what we call it at our company. Like, holes are free. The robot doesn't care. (laughs) Like, you know, how many holes you want, what shape you want, doesn't matter. Um, So that makes it easy to have a facade where every panel is different, right? Whereas before, trying to have a facade where every panel is different would have cost a gazillion dollars and would have been impossible. It would have been way too much labor to do it, right? Also, uh, it helps in tracking the chaos, right? So some of the technology that's been developed in CAD systems over the last 10 years is what helped the, uh, the water bubble and the and the bird's nest there for the Shanghai Olympics that got built, even remotely possible to get built, like because the structural engineering calcs on the bird lit, bird's nest alone required like huge work from the uh, company that did it to make that actually stand up and work properly. So, so new technologies change things because it it makes it easy. Technology is getting cheaper. Also, changes what's easy. And I like to just show this slide because. The first laser writer, the first laser printer that Apple came out with that kind of like launched the desktop publishing industry back in the 80s and it was like a huge deal. When you adjust it for inflation, it's more expensive than all the entry level digital fabrication tools right now. That like you can go buy yourself a 3D printer or an, a laser cutter or like a CNC router like we have you know, uh, for less money than that laser writer cost back in the 80s, right? So you can afford to waste these machines, right? Our CNC routers, we bought them for cash. They can just sit unused in the shop, right? They don't have to be doing production work day in and day out. It used to be CNC robots like that, like robots, any kind of production robot, either had to be cranking out high volume productions of really cheap stuff or had to be making parts for Boeing, you know, for airplanes that were ridiculously expensive to, pay, to even just pay for itself, right? Because it was so expensive. Now they're so cheap that you can buy one and do goofy stuff like this with it and, and it's perfectly fine, right? Um, Which brings me to this weird thing where, like, everything old is new again, right? So in the 1950s, the reason that you could do this pre-1950s, materials were expensive, but people were cheap, right? Labor was cheap. You could have an army of plaster workers making these amazing facades. This is the Paramount Theater over in Oakland, by the way. It's absolutely gorgeous on the inside. So when people are like, why can't they build Victorians that look like Victorians anymore? This is why, right? Materials were expensive, but labor was cheap right? So those Victorian facades were all made from local redwood and you could have an army of people carving out doodads for you, right? And then World War II happened and for a variety of reasons labor got expensive but materials got cheap, right? Which leads us to this whole modernism sort of thing. So I have these awesome expensive materials in there but we're not gonna spend a ton of time on that because we can't afford to, right? So we're, you know, this kind of minimalist design is what became really prevalent partially for economic reasons because you could do this and you couldn't afford to do this anymore, right? An interesting thing that's happening is now we're kind of coming full circle. Um, Post 2000, labor because of robots is getting cheap, cheaper, and materials because of things like climate change and the materials themselves becoming a lot more complex is uh, becoming more expensive. So this is a great example. This is the uh, SFMOMA expansion that's happening here in San Francisco and the new skin for that all these outside panels are being carved by robots and then being cast in a special fiberglass, like fiber, like fire resistant GFRC kind of panel system. And uh, you know, this is just as rich as like this, right? Like I mean, it's, it's a little more sleek and modern because that's kind of what we're into today. But there's no reason that that couldn't be that, right? Robot doesn't care. It could look the same, you know. and. Uh, these are just some quick renderings. This is a project we're in the middle of right now. So this crazy ceiling thing that we're gonna make and like these crazy seating things that we're gonna make, you know, that's all gonna get cut out by a robot. You know? So we can make crazy forms and more expressive forms and have it not cost a gazillion dollars. So things are kind of coming full circle. <sighs> kind of rediscovering, well, the architects in the room will laugh at that. Um, rediscovering old ways of working. So this pre-litigation architecture, right? So that top left there, that's a famous building by a famous architect back at the turn of the century. That building was built where they were just making one-to-one drawings with the, plaster, with the terracotta uh, sculptors. Right? So the architect would draw a crazy elevation showing all these doodads, nothing dimensioned, nothing like specified, just would draw it. And they would go and meet with the terracotta people who would redraw it, one-to-one scale, and then they would just build it. right? Because after the 1950s, the construction industry in general got way more lawsuit happy, and it radically changed the interaction that the architect could have with the actual tradespeople that were building the building. Right? Now, for a variety of reasons, robots and automation being one of them and the communication being the other, that's starting to change. And we're starting to rediscover ways of working where we're able to communicate really highly. A great example of this is uh, in this project, like that cabinet under the stairs, we didn't make shop drawings for that cabinet. There was no drawings that ever existed of that cabinet like a traditional process would have been us hiring a mill workshop showing them what we wanted them coming out and measuring it doing working drawings shop drawings sending back to us us signing off on it instead we're able to just go build the thing for the project right you know um part of this too is you have bigger teams that talk more and the death of this lone architect you know there's this kind of weird cult-like obsession with the lone visionary architect that was almost perfectly embodied in the horrible novel, The Fountainhead. Um, sorry, just, it's not horrible in the objective, f- f- I'm not saying that because of the philosophical reasons, I'm just saying it was a horrible caricature of what architecture is, and I've had to struggle my whole life to argue with people that that's not any way representational of what architects actually do or are, uh, so at any rate. Um, because you have more involved and more trust. Again, we're back to the An-on card, right? You have more people involved, you, you're giving more trust to those people and so again, you're kind of returning to the way that we built things like 100 years ago where you had teams working together. And a great example, if we go to Gaudi. So this is Gaudi, the, the famous Barcelona architect. Um, top left, I mean, sorry, top right there. So a lot of the ironwork that is so distinctive on Gaudi buildings was actually designed by a guy named Jujul, right, who worked with Gaudi and was an amazing designer in his own right. Gaudi actually had a huge team of artisans who he worked with. It wasn't, he was kind of a cultural rallying point that they all came to work with to do this amazing stuff. So it wasn't Gaudi like this lone genius designer. It was Gaudi inspiring these other designers who are extremely talented to do these amazing things, right? And also Gaudi was using really clever, semi-automated ways of solving problems. This is a structural model. I'm sure a lot of people here have seen this. What he did is he hung weights from chains. Each weight represents a load that would be on the building. If you flip this upside down, it's basically a diagram of the load patterns of the Sagrada Familia Cathedral that he was building. So he figured out all the parabolic arches automatically by making the building solve itself. Right? Without Which, computers. without computers, because we have computers today, I can make little scripts that do this. For those seating things that I was just showing you, I didn't model like every one of those little panels in the seating, in the, the seating things here, those, that, that thing. I didn't model those panels. I drew the overall form. And then told it the rules that I wanted it to put those panels on there. And then it made all those panels for me. And when we cut those out, it will number them all for me. And then I can just put it together and I don't have to think about it too hard. Because I am you know, want to build cool stuff. So again, just to wrap things up, and these are some making of photos for the long now, um, I'd love to open up for Q&A. And uh, thank you so much. <laughs>
0: Okay. All right. So uh, the first question I have for you, we we talk about, you've talked about the capability is there, the tools are there, the robot bulldozers are amongst us. Yeah. Yeah. But you also talked about adoption being Mm -hmm. historically a problem. So talk to us about... Adoption. You guys can do all kinds of amazing right. technical things because you're small and nimble and right. you think big right. uh, at the same right. time. So right. so what's what do you see the arc of adoption? What do you see some challenges? Say, say a couple things about yeah,
1: that. Yeah, yeah. In the building industry, the arc of adoption is pretty straightforward. Uh, usually the architects talk big about the technology and sometimes make pavilions or little test things, but the architects have no money, really, when you boil it down to it. They don't have the money, right? So then what happens is invariably these technologies get proven in some way and then the big contractors see that it's proven and that it's gonna save them money and that's when the thing actually tips. So like the adoption for the BIM stuff, um, we've been using it heavily for years and really loving it and really enjoying all the benefits that we got out of it. But the thing that made a tipping, one of the things that made a tipping point in the industry that made it widespread adoption was when they built the, uh, the Lucas compound in the Presidio out here. Mm-hmm. Somebody did a 3D model of that in a BIM system And they did what they call collision detection. So they ran through, the model runs through, and anything that's touching that's not supposed to be touching, it it throws a alert. So it's like, oh, that duct is hitting that pipe, right? So they were able to coordinate all of that in 3D before they even got to the point of making like the permit drawings, right? And it saved like millions of dollars. And a guy goes to a big, goes to the builders conference, shows a presentation where where he's like, we saved millions of dollars just by spending a couple thousand dollars on this BIM thing that's, and then all of a sudden all the big contractors a couple years later are, are heavily into it.
0: So, so you think that's speeding up because they've seen a few generations of technology improving things that they'll take a risk earlier or do you think there's still a pretty stiff headwind against some it's, of the stuff? I
1: think it's still honestly a pretty stiff headwind against a lot of the stuff because it really has to be economically proven for the powers that be, the developers and the contractors to really embrace it. And on that note, Um, that UCSF Medical Center project that that I showed the BIM model for earlier that was impossibly complex, somebody who worked on that project, you still have to submit paper to the building department. They won't take PDFs, they won't take 3D models, you submit paper, right, fully documented paper. So a team had to spend a huge amount of time making a giant drawing set that nobody's ever going to read all the way through. Everybody's going to look at the PDFs, everybody's going to look at the BIM model instead. That drawing set needed a cart to move it around. It was this tall when it was on the ground. When all the drawings were put in one pile, it was, like, it was like waist high pile of drawings, you know, for the entire project, right? And a lot of that was because of liability, because if the architect or the engineers don't specify, like, every detail, then the contractor building it runs into a problem. They can then sue, and it's the fault of them, and, like, all this kind of stuff. So there's one of the things that by being a small design build firm, like we are, is we don't have to worry about all of those crazy problems. So we can build something like the cabinet under the stairs without doing any shop drawings because we don't have to like cover our asses in case somebody else screwed up. You you see what I mean? So we're able to just short circuit that process and jump ahead. So there's there's insurance reasons, liability reasons, legal reasons, and, and political reasons with building departments that aren't changing anytime soon. And so you still have to jump through crazy hoops because of that.
0: So, so do, 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 yeah, summarize yeah. that question then. So in the past, the, art, the artisans, the, the, the people are doing it hands-on, had a lot of that knowledge built in to them. Now the tools are doing a lot of that hands-on right. thing. Is, is that knowledge mm-hmm. of how to do it yeah. locked into those tools?
1: No, no. What it, they, there's still a craft. It's kind of a different craft. Uh, Bill Chrysler, who does the crazy giant sculptures loves to talk about this topic, where just because he's making things with robots, that's just a different form of craft, right? There's still a craft involved. And a great example, just briefly, is um, a famous. one of the first famous lawsuits that happened over the whole BIM thing was where architects designed a ceiling that couldn't physically be built, right? It worked in the BIM model, it worked great in the 3D model, no pipes touched, no HVAC touched, anything like that, but you would essentially have to have all of it be instantaneously assembled because This pipe and that duct and everything, there's no way that you could do it. And the trades don't work that way, right? The trade, like the pipe guy comes in and does the pipes and he leaves and the plumbing and then the HVC guy. This would have required like them standing side by side and the guy putting in one pipe and then the guy putting in a duct and the guy putting in a pipe. And so the contractor sued the design team and said this is completely unbuildable, right? And the design team overextended themselves because they're like, okay, we have these crazy tools that we can design impossibly complex stuff and wandered into an area that they had no domain knowledge in. (laughs) and wound up creating this huge problem on the project because they packed too much stuff in this really narrow area. You know. So, so the problem is more that when people forget about that, it's not that it gets embodied in the tools. There's still a craft there. And when you don't have a proper communication loop with the people that are actually at the face of work is when the big problems spin out like that. So. OK, one last
0: question uh, from, from the bar over here. Yep. Uh, yeah, so building upon that, I had actually a question about
1: materiality. Yeah.
0: Can you, you yeah. summarize that? Yeah,
1: so, so, uh, so the question is basically, as somebody who does both design and fabrication, um, some people that do design are looking for like a universal material that they could apply to any problem, as opposed to these traditional materials, like brick wants to do what brick wants to do, and wood kind of wants to do what wood wants to do, and steel kind of wants to do what steel wants to do. Um, honestly, for us, uh, trying to find like a universal material that's just abstract that we can make anything out of anything with isn't really part of our process at all. Um, it's never really been something that we've even tried to seek out because um, usually because of cultural and budgetary reasons, we're not making things in the abstract. We're not making like some big noodly pavilion form that's going to sit in a museum somewhere and we don't care what the, the actual end material is. And we're not doing like material research science like, the Ronald, like Ronald Real is doing like crazy 3D printing and salt and dirt and, and experimenting on that end. We're making things like what's right here. And in here, the material palette that we chose for the long now interval was very specific because of the machine shop, blacksmith shop traditions that this space originally had historically, as well as the era that we were kind of going for, like a kind of 1940s sort of palette in a way, but a little bit more modern, and so hence you've got like the walnut, right? And this walnut in the bar is locally harvested from somebody's backyard in in, in East Bay. Uh, Our our landlord is a honest-to-God Japanese carpenter and has all these trees laid up from over the years and this is California black walnut that you literally cannot buy, you know, like we we were able to get it from a source and so we really enjoyed being able to celebrate that materiality purposefully in the design as opposed to trying to make everything out of some um, um, ammutanium perfect thing that we can just mill and it's always the same and and we can impose our will on it instead we're working with the materials. Does does that make sense? Yes. Okay.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody. Like I said, we we hope you can stick around, ask Jeff a lot, more, Jeffrey a lot more questions. Um, Alexander, our executive director, uh, who's right there, he can explain to you uh, the 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 uh, what ties together uh, these illustrations here on um, that auto uh, our drawing machine has drawn tonight. If you've got a guess as to what they are and why they're all together. Uh, let him know. Um, we, uh, we're going to stick around. Uh, Jeffrey, I yeah. want to give you a long now oh. challenge coin. Oh, thank you. To thank you for being a, a great Aww. speaker and everything you've done for us. Let's give him a round of applause. Thanks, and- everybody.
1: <laughs> thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to The Conversations at the Interval find out more about our series and Long Now, go to theinterval.org or longnow.org. Thanks again.